Andrew Muir to ask the first question. Andrew Muir. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Question number one. Um, we are committed to the development and implementation of the rights, language and identity proposals contained in the new decade, new approach document. The delivery of these priorities will be important in building our shared future based on mutual respect and parity of esteem. While the COVID-19 pandemic has undoubtedly delayed the speed at which we would have liked to see these issues progressed, it has certainly not deterred us from delivering them as quickly as possible. Officials are undertaking the necessary preparatory work to legislate for the core elements of the bills, and we intend to progress legislation during 2021 and to create the relevant bodies as quickly as possible thereafter. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you for the Deputy First Minister for her response. Uh, on the 3rd of September, I asked the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, in light of the de delays encountered to date, whether they intended to publish revised timescales for the implementation of New Decade New Approach. It is now the end of November, and I still have not received a response. Um, can the Deputy First Minister give a commitment that there will be new, clear, firm timescales given for the implementation of rights, language and identity aspects of New Decade New Approach and all other aspects? Thank you. Thanks to the member for the question. And I'm sorry, I don't understand why you haven't got a response, but I'm happy to, to give you that commitment that um, whenever we bring forward the bills, it will be laid out with a very clear time frame for delivery. People will be able to chart its way through um, the rest of this mandate. But it's my intention that we um, have to deliver upon the new decade, new approach um, issues, which obviously brought us all back together again and, and uh, had the restoration of the executives. This is a really important piece of work that needs to be brought to this House uh, in the very imminent future. Sean Lynch, supplementary. My good uh, and I want to thank the Minister for her answer so far. Does the, ministers, the joint ministers agree with me that all new day and new approaches, um, commitments, not just on language and rights, need to be delivered? However, critically, is she concerned that the British Government has failed to implement its commitments on legacy, including a public inquiry into the mother of human rights solicitor Pat Finucane, a decision we await today? Thanks to the member um, for his question. And as, as he knows and everybody in this House knows, NDNA committed all of the parties to work together and to do everything possible to heal wounds and to eliminate the issues that always divide us. Core to the end, NDNA was that the British Government would, within 100 days, publish and introduce legislation to implement the Stormont House Agreement and start an intensive process to address legacy issues. Clearly, to date, the British Government has failed to bring forward any meaningful proposals on legacy, and there has not been any intensive um, process. To my mind, the failure to progress the commitments made uh, demonstrates shocking levels of bad faith, particularly whenever these commitments have been outstanding from the Stormont House Agreement um, back in December 2014. I have today spoken with the Finucane family, um, who will this afternoon uh, receive next steps from the British Government. It is their view, and it is certainly a view that I share, that all state agencies must be accountable to the law. It is my clear view that the British Government has no alternative but to direct a public inquiry into the murder of human rights lawyer Patrick Finucane. I believe it is in the public interest also to do so. The failure to honour political commitments and uphold legal obligations in respect of legacy matters will have far-reaching implications affecting victims and public confidence in the rule of law and the administration of justice. Kankorlief, we are going to continue to build the peace that we all must work very hard for every day, however difficult and challenging, to collectively heal all the wounds of the past, then we must continue to do that together. I call Rosemary Barton. Thank you, Deputy Minister. If 
Deputy Minister, you will know that the Ulster Unionist Party are against this aspect of the new decade, new, new approach deal, given that the language and culture has already been catered for as part of the Belfast Agreement. But, Minister, can you outline the overall cost of implementing this section of the agreement? Um, well, I, I am aware that the Ulster Unionist Party are against bringing forward legislation that delivers party of esteem for those who have an Irish national identity, and I think that's regrettable. And I would ask you to reconsider that position. No one has anything to fear from legislating for the language. No one has anything to fear from allowing children who are educated through the medium of Irish to live their life through Irish. So I would just again ask the Ulster Unionist Party to rethink your position and perhaps um, join everybody else who's trying to deliver this legislation, because I believe it's in, in society's um, wider interest. In terms of the costs, um, whenever we bring forward the, the proposal and the time frame um, for the delivery of the legislation, we'll also bring forward costs around all the different elements, um, including the different um, Office of Identity, for example, and what that looks like. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to provide that to the member. Could I ask the Minister, please, uh, if, in fact, the legislation governing languages and uh, particularly the role of commissioners for languages will be clearly defined within that legislation. So the member will be aware that the legislation has been published as part of uh, New Decade, New Approach, so he'll be aware of what is legislated for. There are obviously provisions within that bill around the Office of Identity, and there will have to be more uh, meat put in the bones around, around that. So very happy to, again, I hope to be in a position very soon to be able to bring forward the legislation and um, have a fulsome conversation around um, shape and all of that. Moving on, I call George Robinson. To you, Mr. Speaker. The protocol commits to avoiding the need for any customs and regulatory checks or controls on related physical infrastructure north-south. As such, there is no change in the position of the Irish Government. The recent statement from Minister Simon Coveney clarifies that this will also remain the case even if the controversial notwithstanding clauses in the Internal Market Bill are reinstated when it comes, uh, returns to the House of Commons, and I welcome that clarification. George Robinson, supplementary. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, would the Deputy First Minister agree that the more co cooperative tone compared to previously from the Republic's Minister for Foreign Affairs is welcome, particularly for Northern Ireland businesses? Well, I think we have to continue to work together. Um, it's in everybody's interest that we work together north-south and indeed east-west whenever it comes to the taxing issue of Brexit. Um, so um, I think that uh, the clarification, as I said, was welcome from Minister Coveney. Does the Deputy First Minister feel about the guarded border that has been provided by the Republic of Ireland in respect of COVID? And doesn't it illustrate the full anger and farce of opposition to as much as an extra camera on the border when it came to Brexit, both by Dublin and politicians like herself? Or is she, is she so wedded to an ideology that she doesn't care if restrictions on imports into Northern Ireland cripples the Northern Ireland economy, or in fact, is that what she's looking for? Well, can I say, just in relation to remind the member that it's the majority view of this House that actually reject Brexit. The majority of the parties, the majority of the MLAs elected to this chamber reject Brexit. It's something that's being foisted upon us against our wishes. We, we set ourselves a task at the very start of the Brexit debacle to try and afford ourselves some protections, and that was achieved in the form of the protocol and the withdrawal agreement. 
And then within that, albeit far from perfect, it at least provides us with some guarantees and some assurances, particularly in relation to no return to a hard border, particularly in relation to protection of the all-island economy. And whilst there isn't a meeting of minds on the issue of Brexit within uh, the executive, there is a, a joined-up approach in so far as minimising disruption, minimising costs being pushed on to the consumer. And we have worked very hard to make sure that that has been hard, right at the front and centre of all of this debate. So I can say very clearly to the member that um, I've worked very hard to protect the interests of the people who live here. I've worked very hard and actually look towards Dublin for, to afford some protections actually to the people on this, um, jurisdiction, in this jurisdiction and I think we need to continue to do that. I call Pashi um, just picking up on the issue of borders and, and border checks, uh, does the Joint First Minister share my concern about the uncertainty facing cross-border workers in the context of Brexit? Yes, I certainly can say that I, that I do, and I think that I think the figure is 30,000 um, estimated cross-border workers in Ireland, very many of whom cross the border back and forth every day, just part of their daily um, routine. So I think the loss of protections at the end of the transition period in just over one month's time. I mean, that's fast um, coming towards us. That's going to have a huge, significant um, impact in terms of people's everyday lives. I'm concerned at the flaws and the shortcomings in the British government's frontier workers' regulations. And I note that several trade unions, uh, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, the Centre for Cross-Border Studies and the various migrant welfare associations have all recently raised these concerns also with the British government. As the Brexit negotiations enter the end game, I think it's not an acceptable nor a tenable position that cross-border workers are still in a limbo with this um, stage of discussions. So any frontier schemes must be accessible, fair, and cognizant of the fact that this, we have special needs of, um, of the special needs of cross-border workers here in Ireland, and the British government must fulfil their legal obligations as contained in both the Good Friday Agreement and the EU Withdrawal Agreement. Call John Blair. Can the Deputy First Minister confirm that all departments have been working collectively to, to ensure that they are ready for the post-transition period and ready also to deal with all possible outcomes of the negotiations? Yeah, I can say that there has been a cross-departmental uh, group set up and it's looked at um, what are the areas of concern, what are the things that we need to address. There's certainly been six high-level um, impact risks that have been identified, and that's around food supply, around um, highly regulated um, goods such as medicines, business preparedness, data flows, SBS checks and transport. So they're the six sort of high level risks that are identified and things that need to be addressed. So on a cross-departmental basis, um, everyone's working together to try to address those things. And I can assure you there's a long list that even comes beyond those six things that also need to be um, resolved. So significant challenges and significant preparation is underway. And as we come towards this sort of crunch Period, which we've been told it's crunched for a number of weeks now, but I think we are in the realms now of end game of, of where Brexit's going to land. Um, these are big challenges for us as an executive and assembly, and we're going to have to uh, embrace them and take them on. Christopher Stafford. Thank you, uh, Mr. Speaker. The contents of the Internal Market Bill represents a backstop to the backstop. Uh, to use a phrase, given the reaction that there has been to the content of the Internal Market Bill, doesn't it expose? just how false the claim that best endeavours would be used has proven to be? And by what torturous logic does a Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland say a proposal that cuts Northern Ireland business off from its largest market represents a good outcome for us? 
Well, as the member will know, my views on the Internal Market Bill um, and they're very clear. This is the British Government um, trying to rewrite a deal which they had previously made, reneging on a commitment which they have uh, made with the EU, and, to try, and then to legislate, to breach international law. I don't think that bodes well for anybody looking for a future trade relationship. So when it comes to the interests of business here, we'll not be, we'll, there won't be very many opportunities if the British Government continually breaches its own obligations that it signed up to itself. Moving on, I call Sinead McLaughlin. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Question number three, please. I understand, Mr Speaker, that question number 12 is being withdrawn, so with your permission, I'm going to answer questions 3 and 14 together. The Executive's response to and recovery from COVID-19 continues to be focused on the health and well-being of our citizens, our economic well-being and revitalising the economy, and our societal and community well-being. A very large number of public health evidence is considered, much of which is publicly available. Papers from SAGE are published on a publicly available data repository, and reports of independent SAGE and also original scientific publications are also considered, along with other evidence. The Executive is also placing a particular emphasis on people and on families, and we know how important this is to everyone. Any decisions on the Executive's next steps, therefore, will be informed by the impact they may have on us as individuals, on families and on the wider communities within which we all live. Going forward, we are committed to ensuring that support packages meet the needs of those who need our help. Looking into 2021, the Executive has approved a recovery framework, which is aimed at progressing a cohesive approach across the whole of government that will deliver an economic, health and societal recovery, which is citizens at its core. This work will also complement the longer-term programme for government which is currently being developed and which we are aiming to have in place by April 2021. The junior ministers currently lead a strategic enforcement group comprising local government and PSNI representation, as well as TEO, justice, economy and communities officials. We're also looking at additional ways in which we can encourage all citizens and sectors to adhere with regulations and public health advice. Uh, thank you, Minister, for your answer so far. We're 10 months into this pande pandemic, Minister. Can you give a guarantee that following this current lockdown, that we um, will get a very clear recovery plan? Because the Republic of Ireland has, has one, England has one, Scotland has one, and the people of, of Northern Ireland deserve one. Yeah, as I set out in my original answer, we are very much looking towards recovery. We are still in the midst of the pandemic also, and we have to work our way through this latest um, phase that we're in. Um, we're hopeful that the measures that have been brought in will bring us to the other side of, of Christmas, and we're really, really hopeful for that. And uh, I think most people have noted over the course of the last number of days, the figures are going in the right direction in terms of positive cases, and that's something to be very much welcomed. Um, but we have to look towards recovery. And we have, as you know, um, now appointed an interim um, head of the civil service, which will really help us in our endeavours in terms of recovery. And we certainly want the new um, interim uh, head of the civil service, Jenny Piper, to be very much focused on the issues of COVID, of Brexit and of recovery. And those are the three things that are, I suppose, top of, of, of the entry for, for herself coming in and working with ourselves, because we have to uh, work our way out of this. I think that the Treasury's announcement last week was disappointing in terms of our ability to invest in recovery, um, but certainly the executive is very much focused on this and will be right into the new year, and we're going to have to pick up an awful lot of broken pieces, because that's the reality. Everything is in, uh, in terms of economically, a lot of sectors are in, um, in tatters, and they need, they need the executive support. 
Minister, as you know, our priority must be to find new ways to minimise the impact of the pandemic, save lives, reduce the spread of the virus and protect the capacity of our health service. Is the Joint First Minister optimistic about the potential of a mass vaccination and testing programme? Thanks to the member for, for that question. And I can concur that um, certainly over the weekend, any question, or the most question I got asked over the weekend was about the vaccine, because everybody's looking for some hope and they're looking for, some, for, for a way out of, of the COVID um, pandemic. So on Thursday past, we had a very good presentation at the executive. We, we had the head of the Department of Health's COVID-19 vaccine programme present to us. And it was really heartening and very, very hopeful, um, colleagues. The plans are now at an advanced stage for the rollout of the vaccine. I hope that um, some of the most vulnerable will be the first to receive the vaccine. So it's going to be laid out in, in five different waves. And the first are phases. And the first phase includes our healthcare staff, um, our residents in, in care homes, and those over 80. Um, and then we'll move from that into early 2021, where we're going to have those who are over 65 and vulnerable, vulnerable people under 65 going to receive the vaccine. And then further to that, in spring 2021, those over 50 who have not yet been vaccinated should also receive the vaccine. And then by summer of 2021, we hope to see that mass um, vaccination rolled out to the general public. So that's a very hopeful um, position for us to be in. And I think that alongside that work, what's necessary work is the rollout of mass testing. Um, and that's going to be a, a really important part of our management of um, COVID um, whilst we get to the point where we have that widespread um, vaccine in place. So we, we have no doubt that the rollout of both these programmes is going to be very challenging. Um, presents with us, us with a huge logistical challenge, but core to our approach to all of this has been what we announced last week, which is the establishment of a task force to take forward this essential um, piece of work. So there's no doubt in, in I think all of our minds that uh, the delivery of a mass testing programme and the delivery of the vaccine is transformative in our battle against um, COVID. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and, and thank you, Minister, for your detailed answers. Um, but I wonder if you could expand slightly uh, and let us know what um, role the Departments of Economy and Communities will have uh, in any recovery plan stock framework. Well, I think any recovery plan or any um, plans for going into the future is going to involve every single executive department because everybody's going to have a part to play in all of that. We have done some work on this over the past number of months, and I think that um, when it comes to, to the role of the economy department, whether that's supporting businesses, whether that's you know, investing in businesses, whether it's communities, which is about supporting people and individuals, and our, the third sector, the community and voluntary sector, everybody who has a part to play in society. So our aim is to deliver a balanced and proportionate um, response. So dealing with the here and now, dealing with what we have to, economically, supporting people financially, um, but recovery for us is not about getting us back just to where we were before. It's about how can we do things maybe better? Can we have a societal reforms that actually helps us to deliver things better? So I think it's about a combination of whether it's supporting individuals, supporting workers, supporting businesses, and then that wider sort of societal um, approach. So it's not just for the executive to deliver that, I think is the other thing to say. And we're going to be very much looking towards um, wider societal input because we won't be able to do this together because we're recovering from such... Such a, such a massive shock, COVID and Brexit together, double dunder, you know, that's hugely um, shakes the, the foundations of, of just life as we know it. So I think that we have a big, big job of work to do ahead of us uh, in terms of the recovery piece. Well, Gordon Dunn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And can the Deputy First Minister elaborate on the need to support those businesses, for example, on the high street, 
and the, in the tourism sector, hotels, and the hospitality sector also, that are hardest hit and really are in need of support through recovery. I don't know what's going on there with that noise, but <laughs> I'll carry on. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, some of the financial package that we were able to announce last week from the executive, I think, is hugely significant. And things that we're trying to do, we're trying to reach people that perhaps haven't had funding previously. We're very conscious of the fact that the tourism sector has compl been completely decimated. Um, tourism and COVID just don't go hand in hand. Um, so we know we need to support people to be able to stay uh, just to, be, to stay still until we can come out the other side of this when they can start to operate again. So a number of the things that we brought forward um, last week we hope will, will go somewhat um, to, to supporting people right now. Everything from you know, the rates holiday, the voucher scheme that's going to get our high street um, running again, um, the support that we announced for tourism and hospitality schemes, bed and breakfasts, um, additional support for, um, for pubs, and I think all those things are, are really, really important to try and just keep people afloat till we get to the other side of this. Nicole, Emma Rogan. can call you question four. Over recent weeks, negotiations have intensified with the aim of securing an agreement. Discussions on the future relationship have continued since then. We welcome this commitment to continue discussions. However, we recognise that these talks could still result in a non-negotiated outcome. We are therefore continuing our operational readiness planning to include this possibility. The key challenge for departments in this planning process is the urgent clarity which is needed to implement both the protocol and any agreed deal with the EU. Our officials have undertaken bilateral meetings with officials from other departments in order to scrutinise readiness issues and identify possible mitigations, including where interventions would be required from the British Government and assurances around continuity agreements or bilateral agreements. Ministers will be aware that the lack of clarity and preparedness in relation to the implementation of the protocol will have a real impact in economic terms. Can the Joint First Minister set out the primary issues of concern at this minute? Yeah, thanks again for, for the question. I think that I said earlier in an answer to, to a question that this is a crunch week and it appears that we are um, even closer to an outcome. Um, we've been told, as I said, uh, for some time now that it was going to be crunch week, but it's clear that time is running out and, and I think that it appears that um, things are edging closer, or at least the issues are narrowed down in terms of um, reaching an agreement. But there's no doubt that we have and all departments are facing significant challenges in undertaking all the readiness planning, um, including the lack of clarity around the various issues in relation to the protocol that will have wider implications on operational readiness. As a result, the EU Future Relations Programme has been refocused on readiness activities and the Executive has agreed to focus on those six high-priority, um, high-impact risks identified by the departments, so that's food supply, flow of highly regulated goods, um, business preparedness, data flows, SBS checks and transport. And to ensure that they are considered concurrently, this plan is also being taken forward in parallel with the COVID-19 response and recovery. And we have a hub structure in place and it exists to respond to both COVID and EU exit should it be um, required. So all of, all of that I think speaks to the need for immediate clarity and certainty and for the British government to fulfil their legal obligations as contained in both the Good Friday Agreement and the EU withdrawal agreement. Call Roy Beggs. 
Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol are slowly becoming apparent to Northern Ireland consumers and businesses. Many retailers are already indicating that checks on food products will add to costs and delays and that some products will not even be placed on shelves from the 1st of January. So my question is, has the Deputy First Minister, along with the First Minister, rigorously lobbied the EU to minimise delays on our goods moving to GB and to minimise the bureaucracy, the costs, the delays and the inconvenience to Northern Ireland consumers? I can say to the member, I think we spoke about it in this House before, that yes, we have. We've raised it at every opportunity. We don't have a meeting of minds on the issue of Brexit, but we do have a meeting of minds in terms of trying to limit um, disruption to our local businesses to make sure the costs aren't passed on to consumers. Um, we've, we've heard at length over the course of recent weeks this issue of food supply in particular, and I've said that that's one of the high-risk areas which we have identified. And we will continue to raise that issue until we have clarity on all of these things. It's about time the businesses here had this clarity. We've been calling for it um, for a considerable period of time. Well, Colin McGrath. Mr Speaker, the Deputy First Minister will be aware that today begins the last of three weeks before the Christmas recess. Uh, do you have any indication of the legislative timetable uh, that's going to be required to deliver um, the Brexit uh, legislation that is required before the 31st of December? And as we've nothing planned for this week, how are we going to fit this into the two weeks that are left? I think the member sets out the challenge. That is the challenge. And I think that um, as departments work their way through and across the departmental way, all the preparedness, all the work that's being done, there's no doubt that there's going to be legislative burden on us, um, even if it's not um, before the end of the year, but certainly it's going to carry out the rest of the mandate. We're going to be bringing forward legislation because I think there will be things that will come in the aftermath as well. So um, we have set out the legislative programme, but um, in terms of once we, have clear, once we have clarity, I think, um, and hopefully we get that clarity one way or the other um, this week, if that comes forward, then at least we're able to set out very clearly, well, this is what the legislation looks like, and then get a, a timetable for, for delivery of it. Joanne Bunting. The Deputy First Minister has made mention of the importance of relationships at this time and, how, uh, and the crucial period that we're in. So in light of that, does she concur that recent tweets from Sinn Féin TDs with regard to a terrorist campaign have been immensely hurtful and damaging to relationships here at home? Can call you the, the questions in relation to Brexit, so I'm quite sure the member might take an opportunity to run topicals, but this question is in relation to Brexit. Paul Trevor Clark. Question number five. Payment of compensation to victims and survivors of historical institutional abuse began in May of this year, and as of the 19th of November, redress panels had made 219 determinations, totalling 5.9 million. A total of 4.3 million has been paid out, and while redress can never fully right the wrongs of the past, it is an acknowledgement by the executive of the harm done, harm that must never ever happen again. Contributions from those institutions found responsible for systemic failing by the Hart Inquiry would defray some of, the some of those costs um, of compensation. This is a key Hart recommendation. Officials have engaged in a further round of contact with the institutions to, re to affirm the executive's intentions. In order to proceed, we are seeking a roundtable meeting with the relevant institutions to emphasise the seriousness of the negotiations, the urgency of making progress, and to agree fundamental principles which would govern the negotiations. Trevor Clark, 
thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. And I suppose the latter part of the, the answer answers the question in the sense that actually no discussions have taken place yet. And I think the importance for certainly many of the people in this House is that the institutions of those who were responsible for the hurt to these people are brought to. Uh, the financial burden should be laid upon them. So I suppose I'm urging you, Minister, to update the House in relation to what your commitments are actually to make sure that those institutions actually pay for the damage that they've done to those individuals that they were supposed to be in their care of. Just to say, I can't call you. There's no question of that um, at all. I'm actually quite frustrated that the meeting hasn't, that we haven't had a further meeting. But there has been official level meetings. But um, I can assure the member that I've raised the issue with officials that we need to have this meeting now, because we need to be able to progress this issue now. Call McNasbitt. I thank, thank the Deputy First Minister. Given we know the institutions which will be liable to contribute to redress, would you consider asking them to make substantial deposits immediately? Uh, deposits which could be refunded if they pay excessively. And this would be a scheme which would take a lot of the pressure off the public purse. As I said, I think that uh, they, have a, they have a role to play and they have to be able to financially contribute. So um, I will take what you've said on board and I'll speak with officials in relation to it and see if that's something that is um, possible. And if it helps um, stop any further delays, then I'm more than open to looking at anything like that. Sinead Annis. Uh, can I ask the Joint First Minister if she can provide an update on the timeline for delivery of the new uh, HIS support services? Well, um, I'm actually delighted to say that um, the, tomorrow actually we'll be launching the um, service and it's going to build on what's already been achieved um, for HIA victims and survivors and on the interim service for counselling and emotional support that was established in early summer. So I think this um, is certainly another milestone in the implementation of the Heart Report. That ends the period for a list of questions, and we will now move on to 15 minutes of topical questions. And I call Daniel McCrossan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you to the Deputy First Minister for the answers to the questions so far. Can the Deputy First Minister provide details of the rollout of the COVID vaccine, um, and can she give a, a, a reassurance that those living in rural areas will have access to the vaccine, particularly those who have no, ac no access to cars or public transport? Yes, well, as I said out in, during question time, the vaccine programme, I think, offers us the, certainly offers us the best hope um, in our fight back against this pandemic, and great strides have been made forward. Um, there's going to be a rollout um, plan of uh, five different phases, with the first phase being nursing, homes, uh, nursing uh, care home staff and those over 80. Those are the deemed most vulnerable category, and then it moves on into over 65s and under 65s with vulnerable um, uh, who are vulnerable, obviously. So I think that the, the rollout of that, I think this is very positive news. Now, it's not, I wouldn't want anybody to get carried away because it's going to take us to maybe next summer before we have it fully implemented. So we need to still be vigilant and still follow the public health advice. But certainly, um, this is a, a really, really brilliant step forward and great strides have been made. And I um, commend all those for, for getting us to this, to this point. We're going to have a range of vaccinations, um, access, I think, to seven um, different vaccinations. We'll have receive our Barnet consequential of all, of all of that, but I think that Mass Vaccination Society offers us the best um, protection against COVID and the, and the best hope about moving beyond COVID as well. Daniel McCross, I thank the Deputy First Minister for the answer to the question, and it is a very positive step forward, re very reassuring uh, that there is uh, light uh, at the end of the tunnel, uh, and hopefully that 2021 will be a much better year for our society than the one that we have all endured this year. Um, 
Can the Minister outline uh, if, the, if councils are going to have a particular role in administering uh, of uh, this vaccine to, to ensure its rollout uh, is done swiftly and quickly? And does the Minister foresee that the Army will be required in order to get the vaccine out? So, um, last week, both uh, myself and the First Minister announced the task force. And the task force is actually about um, bringing together all different departments and how they can play their role and making sure that we deliver both mass testing and vaccine um, right across our communities. And we have excellent infrastructure here um, in order to be able to deliver this programme, both these programmes. So we want to bring together, you know, councils certainly would have a role to play. Um, I think that we have so many um, community facilities if required. Councils have played their role, actually, I think. I would, I would say that as I have communities the whole way through this pandemic. Um, so it's going to take cross-departmental uh, work. It's going to take a huge lift on behalf of everybody. But that's why we've announced the task force actually to do this very piece of work. I call George Robinson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, could I ask the uh, Deputy First Minister a very topical question? What was the Deputy First Minister's reaction to the comments of your Sinn Féin colleague, Representative Brian Stanley, regarding the horrific narrow water atrocity? Brian Stanley deleted his tweet, um, which was inappropriate, insensitive, and he has apologised, and I accept that. I think we all have a responsibility in, in this decade of centenaries to remember and commemorate the past in a respectful manner. And I think there's an onus in all of us in positions of political leadership to do our utmost to move this society on and to avoid refighting old battles of the past or conduct our politics or unconduct our politics in a way that is respectful and which threatens no one. I think during this centenary decade of centenaries, we're marking key seminal events which have clearly shaped the direction of Ireland and the relationship between Ireland and Britain over the past 100 years. We must set out our analysis, experience and narrative of the past 100 years in a way that's honest, but also in a way that doesn't deepen division. As an Irish Republican, I will contribute constructively by setting out with confidence our inclusive, positive vision for the future, where our mission is to bring all the people of this island together, not to keep us apart. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. <clears throat> and, uh, Deputy First Minister, given previous incidents, such as your Sinn Féin Barry McAlduff gesture about Kingsmill, what action would she take if a member of her Assembly team was to make insulting remarks similar to those of Mr. Stanley? As I said, I think all of us in political leadership have an onus to do our utmost to move society forward and make sure that we avoid refighting battles of the past. I encourage all of us in this chamber as political leaders to do so. Call Chris Little. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. This has obviously been a challenging year for children in Northern Ireland, and many, including two little people in my house, are really looking forward to the hope and gifts of Christmas. So, can I ask the Deputy First Minister, on behalf of younger and some older constituents, to confirm that? The executive guidelines will allow Santa Claus, insofar as possible, to deliver some presents to children this Christmas. Well, I think that's an excellent question, and I'm quite sure that. <laughs> well, I think it's an excellent question, and I'm quite sure um, all the little boys and girls out there are really wanting to know the answer to that. So I can confirm that the elves have confirmed to the executive that Santa is getting ready, that Dancer, Prancer, and Rudolph are ready to go that the presents are packed and that Santa will be here. But they've also said that all the boys and girls need to be very, very good because 25 more sleeps and then Santa's going to be here. Chris Little, follow that one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank 
you, Mr. Speaker. I've, I've tried my best this year. Uh, can, I, can I thank the Deputy First Minister for her confirmation that Santa Claus will be allowed to work in Northern Ireland uh, this Christmas and indeed wish all children uh, a really happy end of term and Christmas this year. Can I also ask the Deputy First Minister to ensure that the Executive work together uh, as best as possible to make 2021 a better year for all children in Northern Ireland? And I'll check a Hansard and see if I can give you a reference. Um, <laughs> Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Um, and thank you very sorry. much to um, the Deputy First Minister uh, and my colleague. Sorry, for, Ms. Armstrong, sorry, I neglected to let the, first, the Deputy oh, First Minister respond if she wished to. Just, just to concur, I mean, absolutely, this year has just been a, a desperate year all round uh, on many fronts for many people. And I think we all acknowledge readily that so many people are struggling right now as a result of. Um, everything that's happened this year. So let's all hope next year's uh, a better year and let's all work together to make that the case. Now I call Kelly Armstrong. <laughs> thank you very much, Mr Speaker. And thank you very much, Deputy First Minister. Um, just speaking about presents, I received one at the weekend. Um, I received an image of a flag that's being designed um, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Northern Ireland. Um, it concerned me slightly because it, it, it does look as an image that is very one-sided. So I'd like to ask the Deputy First Minister if she can confirm when um, the Flag's Identity, Culture and Tradition report will be published or brought to the Executive for discussion. Yes, um, as, as the Member knows that we received the report back on the 17th of July and it covers quite a wide range of um, complex and challenging issues which um, have remained unresolved for an impact on our society for many years. Um, junior Ministers met with the, um, the former Joint Chairs of the Commission to discuss the report and we are currently considering the final report and we will decide on the appropriate next steps including a decision on the publication of the Commission's report in due course. Thank you very much. Um, as I have mentioned, next year brings forward um, a hundredth anniversary celebration, centenary, um, however people want to recognise that. Um, Given the fact that Northern Ireland has come on so far in the last couple of decades, um, can the Deputy First Minister confirm that any considerations moving forward into next year will represent all of the citizens that live in this place, including those of us who designate as both and other, um, to ensure that if there is any production of flags or memorabilia or anything, that it actually is inclusive? Yeah, can, I, can I say, and I'm on the public record of having said this, I mean, this decade of centenaries op opens up, I suppose, the debate around all the centennial sort of seminal events that have shaped the direction of Ireland and indeed of Britain and the relationship between the two islands. And I think that uh, 2021 for me should be inclusive. It should be about um, how we include everybody in the conversation around the continued transformation of this society, how we can make things better. Um, for me, certainly, it presents an opportunity, whilst I certainly will never say there's anything to celebrate um, from partition. I think it's failed everybody across this island, but I don't want 2021 to be defined by rancour or division. I certainly want it to be about a forward-looking conversation. I want it to be about the future, and I want it to be about how can we do that together and make things better together. We'll call the next member to advise that questions 7 and 9 are both withdrawn. William Irwin. Can I ask the Deputy First Minister, does she accept the frustration of smaller retailers such as toy shops when they see large supermarkets selling the same products as they are prevented from selling? Yeah, I, I, I certainly can. And I think this is just such a frustrating time for many people. And there's many contradictions and anomalies in, 
in, in the regulation. So I do share the concern. Um, we, we tried to mitigate somewhat against that by um, allowing click and collect to allow people some opportunity to be able to sell. But I fully accept the challenge this, that there are for the business community right now. William Irwin, supplementary. Can I thank the Deputy First Minister for a response? Can the, Minister, can the Deputy First Minister confirm that such businesses that have to close will, will receive support through the uh, uh, Department of Finance scheme in a timely manner? Yes, and we're, um, obviously there are a number of schemes that are um, paying out grant aid at the moment, and it's really, really vitally important that whilst we're asking people to close the doors, that they're financially supported. So we hope that um, continued progress is being made on both schemes across Department of Finance and Department of Economy, and we need to get that money into people's pockets now. And, and I can assure you that those people that are impacted by this recent um, wave of restrictions um, are also going to be included in, in the financial support package. Call Mervyn Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker, or Mr. Speaker. As the Minister has already stated in the House that all state agencies must be accountable to the law, as one of those state agents, as a Minister of the Crown, could the Deputy First Minister outline to this House what contacts he has had with the PSNI in relation to the Bobby Story funeral? And will she give an accurate account of that contact, unlike when she appeared before the Executive Committee? Uh, of this House on the 1st of July when she was asked and she rightly stated Republicans would have come in even larger numbers from across this island and further afield to the funeral yesterday had that been possible. We actively discouraged people. We now know that is not the case. Well, can I say that I have um, came before this House and before the Committee on many occasions and I have I think, amply dealt with the issue. In terms of the, the funeral and the PSNI inquiry, I have cooperated from the very outset and will be available to the PSNI whenever they set a date for a discussion. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does the Deputy Minister accept that it is a huge, hugely frustrating for the public to see this fiasco being played out for the last number of months, when at the weekend in North Down, we had people put off the beach for going for a swim, but yet you and your colleagues, some others in this House, attended a funeral in breach of the regulations, and months later we are still playing out this pantomime in terms of giving the right accurate account to the law. I think my position is very clear, Ken Corley. I have stated very clearly that I am more than happy to speak to the PSNI whenever something is arranged. And in terms of the weekend and people being asked to leave the beach, they're being asked to leave for, for a reason. The reason is that COVID is rife and we need to try and get on top of it. Well, Melissa McHugh. Uh, as Christmas fast approach, what advice does the Joint Minister have for families? Well, um, it's, it is such an important time, and I'm, and I'm grateful for the question earlier just from, from uh, Chris Little. I just think it's important that we give people some hope. So I'm glad that last week we were able to um, make some announcements around the fact that the executive has agreed that up to three households will be able to form an exclusive bubble for five days between 23rd and 27th of December. For us, that's a balance. We know that there's also an ongoing risk that comes with that. And any relaxation, um, as I said, does come with that increased risk. Our health service is still under huge pressure, as we know, and that's going to be the case into the new year. So even at Christmas, we're asking people just to be sensible and to 
um, please prevent the virus from spreading, so be, be as safe as possible if you do get together. We also know that some people won't take advantage of the relaxations, um, but it's for everybody to make up their own mind in terms of their own personal circumstances and decide what's, what's right for them and what's right for their family. So I suppose our message is that we are allowing some flexibility, but please think of the health service and please think about the implications for what may come in January if, if we let our guard down too much. Mr McHugh, supplementary. Uh, uh, it is probably very appropriate for me, just at the present time, as my mother is in a care home and was just recently diagnosed with COVID. So uh, I thank you for your answer, First, Joint First Minister, but can you confirm if decisions have been made around care homes and students regarding Christmas arrangements? Thanks to the member, and can I wish your mother the very best and, and hope that um, she comes through the, her COVID experience. Um, can I, in terms of nursing homes and students, we actually looked last week at the executive at a whole range of um, Q&A basically that we can put into the public domain that helps people understand and make their own plans for Christmas. <coughs> One of the areas that was missing last week, which the health minister has told us he'll bring a proposal on this week, is the issue of nursing homes. So what does visiting look like for nursing homes in, in the Christmas period? So we hope to be able to have that information this week and then we'll be able to collate that information and then put it into the public domain. And also the issue of students needs to be clarified again. We know that the universities are doing great work around testing to allow students to come home. But again, I think we should put that out there in black and white for people to be able to see um, exactly um, in one source that this is what the current circumstance is. And time is up, members. And uh, please take a raise for a moment or two.